0: Late in 1951, uh, Francis Crick started working with James Watson at the Cavendish Laboratory, which is part of the University of Cambridge in the UK. Uh, and then in May in 1952, Raymond Gosling, uh, who was a graduate student working under the supervision of Rosalind Franklin, took an x-ray diffraction image, uh, and it was labeled as Photo 51. You can see that here. Um, this was high hydration levels of DNA. The photo was given to Watson and Crick by Maurice Wilkins and was critical to their understanding of the double helical structure of DNA. Um, Rosalind Franklin then told Crick and Watson that they had the spines in the wrong spot. So this wonderful uh, scientist lady, she said, no, you've, they were trying to put the spines on the inside. And she said, no, they go on the outside. She could tell from this image. And so they completed their model, and it's now accepted as the first correct model of the double helix uh, structure of DNA on the 28th of February, 1953. So what was it? The 70th anniversary just passed Uh, Crick interrupted the patron's lunchtime at the Eagle Pub in Cambridge. He burst in the door and he announced that he and Watson had, quote, discovered the secret of life. You fast forward about 35 years, in various parts of the world, different research teams uh, studied and they began to unlock the secrets of DNA. DNA. And over the next 20 years after that, they discovered the first genetic uh, editing capabilities r- around about 2005. Some of you may remember the, the chatter on the internet about Dolly the sheep, right? The cloning stuff and people like, oh man, look at what we can do now, you know. Um, and that's when we get this acronym CRISPR. Uh, the CRISPR gene editing was proposed, and that science began in earnest. And nobody but God really knows where this is all going to lead. There are phrases being thrown around like the elimination of hereditary diseases. Though bioethicists are like, "Yeah, but do we want to mess with hereditary stuff? It's one thing that with mutations, but do we want to with stuff you can pass on? Like that's that's a whole other." ball of wax people are talking about dramatically increased lifespans and through this process of gene editing we're able to see and and change smaller and smaller structures uh, of our through through sophisticated chemical manipulation of our own genetic code and and we're just now getting to the point in our science where we can do this with ourselves but Jesus has been able to do that with his church since the beginning pretty much And he routinely needs to do that. Because every now and then we'll get this mutation that creeps in. (laughs) And Jesus has to do a little editing to get his church back on track. He's been doing this pretty much since the beginning. Just like DNA is made up of four chemical compounds, cytosine, guanine, adenine, and thymine, there are four elements that comprise a church's DNA. First, it's theology or doctrine. Secondly, it's philosophy of ministry, then it's size, and then it's local context, all right? And so each week in this spliced sermon series, we're going to look at each one of those in turn. Today, we're going to talk about a church, our church's philosophy of ministry. So please, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. That's where we're going to start. We'll also be in Matthew, but we're going to start in 2 Timothy 2, 2 today. Thank you again for being here. Just want to echo what Shauna said. Uh, If you haven't filled out your connection card, please do that. Thanks for those of you joining us online. Uh, I know from recent experience, it takes a little extra work to do church online. Uh, So I want to encourage you to do that. Be active in the chat. Do your online connection card. Uh, That helps us disciple you digitally. For those of you here uh, this morning, grateful that you came. Thanks a lot. I I pray that you're going to be encouraged and, and strengthened and stretched Uh, by today's message. There are a couple things before we get further into it that I need to let you know about. First of all, is that our elders wanted me to let you know um, about something that's happening here over the next several months. Uh, Some of you may have heard that Kingsway Christian School will no longer be hosted by and associated with Kingsway Christian Church, all right? Um, The the school is now going to be known as Indy West Christian School, and they're building a new facility to house the school. But there's a bit of a gap between when the building will be ready for the students and when they need to leave Kingsway Christian Church. Uh, and so Chapel Rock has volunteered to step into that gap. So Chapel Rock is going to host the 7th and 8th grade of Indy West Christian School for the 23-24 school year. So over the next couple months in, in the lower level of the education wing, all the way down there, um, that way, <laughs> Uh You'll, uh, you might, if you're down there like with our food pantry, Dave mentioned that and, and we'll still continue to uh, need volunteers and support that way. But you may notice some, some changes as Kingsway uh, Indy West Christian School brings some stuff in. Uh, we're just going to kind of be available to be a stopgap measure until they can get their building built. It's been started. We have every reason to believe that they'll be ready to go uh, by fall of 24. Uh, yeah, uh, fall of 24. Uh, so, But uh, for one year, we're going to imbo- Im, you know live out our value of radical hospitality uh, and invite the school to be here. So just want to let you know about that. If you've heard something in the community that way, uh, we just wanted you to hear it directly from us. Um, the school was praying about what would happen. They didn't know. And it was, I'd heard about it and just, it was a Holy Spirit prompting. I can't explain it any other way. I just sent Julie Giardino um, a note and said hey I heard about this if there's a way we can help let us know that's basically what it was and she emailed back a couple days later and she said you will not believe this I was literally about to walk into a meeting with our board I had no idea what would happen with seventh and eighth grade and I got your email right before I walked into that meeting so it's a Holy Spirit thing, we're just going to, you know, God's moving, we're just going to hang on for the ride, okay? So that's going on. And then also, I want to encourage you to lift up uh, Dave Beener and his family in your prayers. Many of you might have heard Dave's wife, Martha, she was very involved here, uh, passed away last week after a short but severe illness. Uh, Martha's visitation will be Friday, March 31, so it's a, it's, a, it's a bit out there, I want to let family come in, uh, from 11 to 2 in here in this room. uh, Friday, March 31, uh, the service will follow at 2. So can we take a second and just pray uh, for the Beener family? God, thank you for this day. We're grateful for the chance we have to be together. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge that the only reason we can be here is because of Jesus. And so in Jesus' name, God, we want to lift up the Beener family and just ask for your comfort and and peace to be on them through this uh, time of grief. Uh, Lord, your word says that we grieve, but we grieve as those with hope. And, and so uh, we're just grateful for the hope of the resurrection and, and the, the, um, the reunion that we'll have with Martha one day, um, grateful for her service and the legacy of faith that she leaves. God, we just thank you for the privilege we have of hosting Indy West Christian School and just pray that you'd help us be good hosts uh, as we do that and that as we turn our minds to replicating your process of discipleship, Jesus, that you'd help us be ever uh, more effective at doing that. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Last week, we started a new sermon series called Spliced, and we talked about how we're seeing Jesus kind of edit the the spiritual DNA of his church, that he's doing some CRISPR gene editing on his own body. He's cutting out mutations and reinserting the code the way it should be. And, And church, this is happening all over the world. All over the planet, we're seeing Jesus do this with his church. Last week, we talked about Jesus, how he is unmutating his church from a focus on attractional theology to a focus on incarnational theology. Today, we're talking about how Jesus wants to edit his church from focusing on discipleship to disciple making. Now, some of you will see that or hear that and go, now, Casey, you're just playing with words again. It's just semantics. What's the difference? Well, there is a difference. In an ideal world, no, they're the same thing. I don't know if you've noticed, we don't live in an ideal world. It's Kind of messed up. And so there is, there is a difference between these two things. And I'm deeply concerned that we have allowed this mutation to creep in. And that we might have a mutated form of discipleship and what we've done is we've, we've taken other forms of spiritual formation, we've called it discipleship, and we've, let, we've lost a measure of our effectiveness at participating in the Great Commission. What we've seen over the last several generations, specifically in the church in the West, it might have happened in other places in the world I'm familiar with here, <laughs> but we, we, what we've seen is that this, the pace of spiritual replication has slowed down because we have focused on spiritual formation practices, which in and of themselves are not bad. They're good things. But we've called them disciple-making. We've called them discipleship. And we've convinced ourselves that that's the case. And I don't know that it is. It's not the process. It's not the, the model Jesus gave us. And so I believe he's getting his church refocused on the, what he, the model he gave us. I believe that Jesus is getting his church, and it is my earnest prayer, this church refocused on disciple-making. So what's the difference? Good question, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Bobby Harrington is the person behind discipleship.org. Here's his definition of disciple-making. Disciple-making is to help a person place his or her faith in Jesus Christ. So disciple-making involves evangelism. It involves conversion. And then to help him or her form their life around Jesus, becoming more and more like him. That's the process of sanctification. That's the process of maturation in the faith. Disciple-making, he says, includes both parts. And I'm, I'm concerned, church, that when we think about discipleship, we just think about growing in our own personal faith. That is not the way Jesus defined it. Disciple-making is both. Harrington goes on, he says, there are four essentials when you are discipling a person. The word of God, the spirit of God, the people of God, and the mission of Jesus. And you must rely on all four. And if you don't have all four present, what you're doing is not disciple-making. It might be good. It might be beneficial. You might get something out of it. But it's not disciple-making as it's revealed in Scripture. And we want to be a Jesus church. We want to be a Bible church. <laughs> and so we're going to focus on those things. I'm concerned that we might have gotten this out of whack. Here's the thing. So I, I, one of the resources that I like to use uh, to, just to find stories and quotes and statistics in, in sermons is a website called preachingtoday.com. Uh, whenever I have an opportunity to speak to young preachers, I tell them I'm like, other than good, uh, you know, good books... Uh, and, and a good Bible, uh, and maybe some Bible software, the, one of the best things you can do is access to that website. And so I, I look at that pretty routinely as I prepare messages uh, for our church, and <laughs> the, I looked at it, and I, I put in the word discipleship, and, and of the stories and quotes and statistics that they had, I, it came back with 384 results that used that word out of several thousand, okay? Cool. I put in the word disciple-making. I got one. Now, again, somebody could argue, oh, that's just semantics. Yeah, but words mean things. And our language matters. So why do they matter? Well, simple. You've got to use language that gets the focus off yourself. Because discipleship is not about you alone. At least not the way Jesus defined being his follower. Discipleship can be misconstrued to mean just me and Jesus. And I so appreciate it. Dave, thank you. I, he, I think he'll be in the next service. Did you hear what Dave said in his community meditation? Did you catch that? Because he said it's about you relating to Jesus and his church. This is something we do in community with one another. Appreciate that. Because it's not, discipleship, please hear me, it's not just you and Jesus. It's bigger than that. It has to be. And the phrase disciple making removes that ambiguity. Because it forces you to realize, no, there's somebody else in this process. And that's the big idea today. The more you zoom in on what it means to follow Jesus, the more you realize you're not the only one in the picture. See, as we've gotten better and better and better at understanding DNA, and we're able to zoom in further and understand smaller and smaller structures, I was going to make an Ant-Man reference here, but I'll pass. As we get better, I'll spare you, Uh, as we get better, you realize there's so much more. As As we've gotten, you know, we're able to zoom in further and further, we see, oh my goodness, there's so much more to this. And when you really zoom in on what disciple making is, you realize you're not the only one in the process. So I think there are two, as we zoom in, I think what we see in greater detail is that there are two aspects to Jesus' spiritual DNA editing process that he wants us to see. So we're going to zoom in a little bit, and here's the first thing we're going to see that we need to reframe the win. We need to reframe the win. That's vitally important. What does it mean to be formed in the image of Christ? I mean, that's typically what we're talking about when we use the word discipleship. We tend to think of it in, in terms of the church's programs, right? Well, we got Sunday school, and we have life groups, and we have, you know, uh, different groups that meets, and we have conferences that we do, and all these great things. And they are great things. I'm not making fun of them at all, at all, Okay. But we think that Bible studies and small groups and classes and religious experiences like Rooted and going to conferences and concerts are supposed to make us like Jesus. And and to some extent they do. And they're good. I'm not knocking them. But that's not disciple making. Don't confuse the two. They can help, but that's not the process. And when you confuse doing all that stuff, which is good, with the win, You've got a mutation on your hands. Here's the thing. The divine DNA edit of our ministry philosophy unmutates the church from looking at ministry as programs in a place to looking at it as people in a process. And church, I really want us to get a hold of this because this is something that I see Jesus doing around the world. Jesus is doing this in his church across the planet right now. And I desperately want Chapel Rock to be part of this. Church is not programs in a place. And so often, it's, it, I think it's, it's easy to think of it that way, but that's not the way Jesus defined it in the Word. It's not programs in a place. It's people in a process. That's the way Paul defined it for Timothy. Let, let's look at the text together. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Okay, let's look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So what he's about to say is an expression of living in the grace of God. All right? This is not legalism. This is grace. This is living out the grace that God has poured into you. So what's he say next? And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, you need to remember, and if you don't know, let me tell you, that before Jesus got a hold of him, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. Right? That's his story. This was very much the experience of being a Pharisee. They placed, and their, their literature from this time frame reflects it, they placed a very high emphasis on passing on sacred traditions to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. This is Paul's wheelhouse. This is what he does. And so what Paul does here in the passage is he reframes the win. Here's the win. Four generations. Four generations of disciple-making. And, and ultimately, that, it goes on from there. But, but you want to know what the win is? It's four generations. Let me expand that a little bit. Excuse me. So we we can map this out in Second Timothy two two. All right, there's four generations here. So we have Paul, generation one, right? He makes a disciple maker out of Timothy. Timothy then makes a disciple maker out of the text calls reliable people. Another way to translate that might be a qu- a competent or qualified people. And then those people are supposed to find others is the word that's used. Others, right? Who we assume will also be disciple makers and the process goes on. But, but you want to know what the win is for disciple making? It's seeing to, disciple makers to the fourth generation. I, I, to my knowledge, and, until I ran across some of the stuff from Bobby Harrington and others, I'd never really seen it defined that clearly. That was kind of a light bulb moment for me. Okay, that it's instead of just this random nebulous, yeah, go make disciples, which is what Jesus said to do, and his disciples understood what he meant because they'd seen him do it, it's like, no, let me clarify that. You want to know what the win is? It's for at least four generations. So that's three handoffs, right? Paul to Timothy, Timothy to qualified people, and the qualified people to others. That's, that's at least three handoffs that are represented there. Four generations. So what is that? Those are your spiritual great-grandkids. If you want to put a family analogy on it, how many, just I'm just curious, but show of hand, how many of you know and, and have met great-grandkids? Raise your hand. We, certainly, we have some great-grandparents in here. Okay, a few. Yeah. I just became a grandpa, right? Here's, here's my goal. This is why I go to the gym. This is why I try to eat healthy. I want to live long enough to meet all my great-grandkids. You know how old I'm going to be before that rolls around? Old. Like, you know, back when dirt was tan. Um, old, right? So I just want to live long enough to, to meet my great-grandkids. And let me ask you, do you have any spiritual great-grandkids? Have you, you got any? I'm, I'm at the grandpa level spiritually. Somebody I discipled who's now discipling other people. I'm not yet at the great-grandpa level. I wanna hit great-grandpa level. So I'm coming to you not as an expert, but as a fellow learner. I'm still learning this stuff, and I want you to join me on this this trip. I'm still trying to figure this out. Do you have any spiritual great-grandkids? See, that's a lot of disciple-making, isn't it? This is lots of lost people getting saved, Lots of infants and children who grow up. And by the way, I love that we have babies in here today. I think that's awesome. I, I'm I'm so pro baby. It's not even funny. You're like, we know. Um, <laughs> I'm totally cool with babies in church. If you don't like it, this might not be the church for you. Okay. I I just think that that's. I, I'm pretty sure Jesus had babies at the Sermon on the Mount. We're we're good with it here, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. This is lots of people being loved and significant kingdom growth that Jesus is pleased. He was pleased with it then. He's pleased with it now. John, or excuse me, Lloyd John Ogilvie in Leadership Magazine wrote, there's nothing more exciting than helping another person become a Christian except helping that person into an exhilarating experience of discipleship. Listen, if the win is just me growing in my own faith, we call that discipleship, we have grossly mischaracterized what Jesus taught about discipleship in the New Testament. That's a mutation. But part of the reason that this mutation happened, I think, is that we lost track of what the process is supposed to look like. And that's the second thing that we need to see as we we zoom in on what being a disciple of Jesus looks like, as we zoom in on what discipleship is supposed to be. We we look at, we look intently at the DNA of the church, right? As we zoom in on this, the second thing we see is that we need to refocus the process. We need to reframe the win. What's the win? Four generations, right? So what's the process? How 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 do we get there? My life group right now is doing a video study on archaeology that supports the Bible and it's really, a lot of it's focused on like the area around Jerusalem and it, it's just, it's kind of getting us ready for Easter, right? Because it's, it's some of the archaeological digs. Last week we were looking at, um, this past Wednesday, uh, some of the methods of crucifixion and, and, and what the records we have about this and like they would, you know, when people were crucified, they found a few years ago like an ankle bone with the nail still in it. And it was, it was a, like, wow, you begin to see how this process was going. And here was something um, that, that absolutely floored me. I did not know this. I'd never heard this. I mean, I, went to, I started Bible college in 1994, and I learned something for the first time this past week. In all of the Roman writings, do you know how much literature we have on how to perform a crucifixion? zero. Literally, nothing. The Romans wrote down everything. They, they put everything down. They wrote all sorts of stuff down. The Roman historian Tacitus and Herodotus and all the other us's, they just wrote down everything. There's no record anywhere of the right way to do a crucifixion. I know you're wondering the same thing I wondered. Why? Because the guy who did that job is the low guy on the totem pole. Nobody wants crucifixion duty. That is not fun. It's messy. It's gross. It, ugh, yuck. You got to stand there and just watch somebody die. It's awful. And In it's institutional knowledge. One of the people in my group is a veteran, and they said it's not in any manual about how to burn a latrine in the army, but everybody knows how. You don't have to write it down. You just, it just gets handed down. It's, it's just passed on. This, it's, ultimately, it is a form of discipleship. You understand, you're being discipled by something right now. It might be your culture. It might be social media. It might be March Madness. I don't know. You're being discipled by something. What? See, there's this process, and thankfully, God didn't want to take that chance. So yes, discipleship has been handed down, but unlike the Roman army with crucifixion, he wrote down how to do it. it this was preserved for us. One is in the passage we just looked at in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, right? Four generations. The, the, the second way actually predates that, because it's seen in Jesus' call to his own disciples. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Look at this, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. If you've got another translation, it might say, I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. In this passage, we have a model of the process. What is the process of discipleship? Well, first of all, you have to come near in proximity and relationship to Jesus. The word come is an invitational language. Come to me. Come close to me. It's it's about proximity. It's about relationship. Right? And then as you hang out with Jesus, he changes you. He took the job of being a fisherman, and he he transformed it. He redirected their life. He gave them a metaphor that they understood, but he completely refocused the whole frame of their existence. And then he sends you out to go find more disciples. To Go make more. And we know that he did because it says they left their nets. Jesus made them into his apprentices, He called them into relationship with him. He trained them, and he sent them back out. That's the process of discipleship. And if your discipleship to Jesus doesn't look at least kind of like that, are you actually his disciple? You're like, Casey, you're messing with me. Dude, he's been messing with me all week. It's your turn. Maybe you've heard the process of how you train someone to do something, right? I do it, you watch. I do it, you help. We do it together. You do it, I help. You do it, I watch. It can feel a little complicated, multiple steps, right? Let me give you one that's even simpler. You want to know what the process of discipleship is? It's this. You do this with me till you can do this without me. Do this with me until you can do this without me. Moms and grandmas, if you've trained your children to cook. That's probably how you did it, right? Here, okay, you stir in the thing, and then you pour in the thing and you put it in the oven. And you set a timer and then you take it out. What do you do? Do this with me till you can do this without me. Maybe for you guys, dads, grandpas, it was out in the garage. All right, you got to go get the socket, and you got to put it on the wrench, and then you got to twist it just the right. Okay, you got you got. Okay, we're gonna cut this piece of wood, but are you you got safety glasses on? You got gloves on? Okay, you got. We got. Do this with me, till you can do this without me. And, and in order for that to work, it has to be three things. Right, it has to be simple, it has to be effective, and it has to be reproducible. It, it's got to be simple to understand. The pro- that process can't be so incredibly complex that nobody can get their head around it. It's got to be simple. Secondly, it's got to be effective. And, and there are some forms of disciple making that sound great on paper, but they don't actually work or they don't work everywhere. Uh, we don't have time to get into this today, but Christian Schwartz wrote a book called Natural Church Development. and One of the things that he talks about in Natural Church Development is that you can be sure that something is of God if it works everywhere in the world. If you want to know whether or not your disciple-making is of God, it does it work everywhere? Because if it, works, if it only works in North America, it may just be relying on culture. But if it works in North America and South America and Africa and Asia and Europe, then that's the Holy Spirit. So it has to be effective. It has to actually work. And the third thing is it has to be reproducible. It has to be something that the people that you train, that they can do. If my process of discipleship relies on you knowing Greek and Hebrew, how many disciples do you think I'm going to make? Two. Maybe. I'm making stuff up. But if it relies on you relating to the God of the Bible revealed through his word as you encounter him and and speak to him in prayer and through fasting and calling people into that life with you, I bet we can make a lot more disciples that way. So, some will ask the question, well, does God want lots of disciples or better disciples? Yes! More and better is the the goal. And that's what disciple-making does. In his sermon, The Meaning of Discipleship, the great author and pastor, Stuart Briscoe, said, in those days, all kinds of people had disciples. And two of the Greek words that were in common use at the time were didaskalos, which means teacher, and mathetes, which means disciple or pupil. He says it was impossible for a didaskalos, a teacher, to be a teacher unless they had a methetes. And it was impossible for a methetes to be a disciple unless they had a didaskalos, a teacher. He goes on to say it was the relationship between methetes and didaskalos, between pupil and teacher, that was the essence of discipleship. He says, yes, it needs to be simple, it needs to be effective, it needs to be reproducible, but more than all that, it's relational. It's about relationship, it's about people that you know. You can't disciple people you don't know. Not really, not the way Jesus did. You can influence them, you can help them, you can teach them even, but you can't disciple them. You have to be in relationship with that person. And so Jesus calls his disciples into relationship with himself. And if what we're doing as a church, Chapel Rock, doesn't call more people into discipleship to Jesus, I would question whether or not we need to be doing that thing. It might be a good thing. It might be beneficial. It might help somebody. But don't you dare call it discipleship. Maybe it's spiritual formation. You want to call it that? Cool. And it might be good. It might be helpful. It might be useful. But it's not disciple-making. And it might not even be discipleship. If our spiritual formation doesn't look like this, it's probably been mutated. See, Jesus sent his disciples out to find and make more disciples. And if we're not regularly doing that, we got to look long and hard in the mirror and go, am I really his disciple? And that stings big time. I believe that's what Jesus is doing in his church around the world is forcing us to reckon with this right now. Our discipleship is not what it should be if we're not at least replicating ourselves to the fourth generation. Did you hear me? That's the big idea today. The more you zoom in on what it means to follow Jesus, the more you realize you're not the only one in the picture. Last Sunday we talked about Attractional theology versus incarnational theology. Living the life of Jesus with people as opposed to just trying to get as big a crowd as we can. And so last Sunday after church, Clay Lewis came up to me, and I have his permission to share this. And he he basically said, he he came up to me, he said, I don't like it when you mess with me like that. (laughs) And I said, well, Clay, Jesus was messing with me all week long, it's your turn. But what specifically bothered you? And he said this, and I mean to tell you, it grabbed my ear and didn't let go all week. He said, I realized that the church that I love, the church that I'm a member of, the church that I've been part of for a long time, the church that I raised my kids in would not have reached me when I was in college. I know part of Clay's story. We're in the same life group. And he, he said, I, w- I wouldn't have been reached by attractional theology. We got the gospel, y'all come get it. I said, yeah, you had friends who just d- d- decided they were going to make a disciple out of you, didn't you? He said, yeah, they confronted me about it. I will confess to you that it annoys the chili out of me when somebody gets up and says, everything you've ever been told about whatever is wrong. I hate that. So I'm not doing that now. Please hear me correctly. I'm not doing that. All I'm saying is I want Chapel Rock to be the kind of church that would have reached clay. That's where I'm trying to lead us. Say, Casey, where, where are you going with all this? I want us to be the kind of church that is more focused on disciple making than discipleship. That's what I want. That's where I feel God leading us. I just want to be the kind of church that will seek and save the lost by making disciples that make disciples. So let me ask you, how's your prayer project going? Last week in the conclusion of the message, I asked you to get your phone out and put a reminder every night at 8.20 p.m. to pray that our church would be a church that seeks and saves the lost by making disciples that make disciples. How's that going? 8.20 is 20.20 military time. It's our address. Yeah. Did you do it? Okay. So so I don't know about you. It's right here in my reminder app. Every night, 820, this goes off. And it just says, pray that Chapel Rock would evangelize the lost in our community and disciple them. And then I have all these letters. And it's just S-A-S-T-H-L-B-M-D-T-M-D. Seek and save the lost by making disciples that make disciples. Did you do this? Have you been praying? I ran into somebody at the gym yesterday. And, and they were like, okay, I know you told us to do that, and I've, I'm trying. Good. I said, sometimes I remember later. Pray then. W- whatever it takes. How's that going? Can I have you add something to that? I so say, how, Casey, how do, you, how do you even start into that with somebody? I don't even know how to start into that. You do the same thing Jesus did. You pray. Before he designated the apostles, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. It's not complicated. You ask God, maybe you'll want to add fasting to that. You ask God, who who, who should I do this with? He'll tell you because he's in charge of this whole process. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I want to tell you, you are missing out on an adventure you can only imagine. So you've got an opportunity right now to come forward even as we sing, name him as Savior and Lord, be baptized, receive God's Spirit to live inside you, and walk as his disciple. You could do that today. Maybe you've got somebody on your heart, somebody who was like Clay was in college, that they've never made that decision, and they're, you're burdened for them today. I, maybe that's the Holy Spirit telling you, this, that's who, that's who. And if you want someone to pray with you, we'd love to do that. You can come forward. You can go to the next step room. One of our leaders will be in there to talk to you. Maybe you've got some other questions or want to have a conversation. That's a great place to go also. I'm I'm not sure how God is leading you. My guess is this kind of stepped on your toes a little bit because it sure stepped on mine all week. And so if like me, you're under this conviction, maybe even as we sing this final song together, your prayer is going to be God. Help me see the world with your eyes. Help me call people in discipleship to you. And maybe it'll begin in your home or on your cul-de-sac, on your block, in your apartment. I don't know. But I guarantee you, God is calling you into this adventure that is grand if you'll just listen to him. That's my prayer today. Would you stand with me and we're gonna sing together and you respond as God leads you.